All right, Josh, we're, we're recording and, uh, I appreciate you taking time. You know, you and I had a chance to meet, uh, or just chat last week, very impromptu conversation. You made the time and I certainly appreciate that. Uh, I, I enjoyed the conversation that we had and I think you have a lot of insight that could be really, uh, just helpful given the situation that we all find ourselves in. So I'd love first, if you could just give us an overview, you know, uh, you, you kind of, you shared with me last time we talked about your, you know, your, your role and in, in the involvement that you have, uh, presently at, uh, you know, at the, uh, JRC. So it'd be great if you could just kind of highlight that for everyone else that might be listening in. Yeah. So I always like to, my, I'm, I'm representing Josh here, not the organization. So yep. what great. I say is, is my opinion alone. Um, yep. and, uh, I am on one of the board member board of directors uh, of GRC since um, I believe 2011 or 12. I can't remember exactly. Um, I did join post there was sort of uh, the executive director change. So I have joined since uh, Glenda Crooks uh, became interim CEO and now is the permanent. Um, I originally started my interaction with JRC as a grad student when I was in Reno. I had an undergrad uh, RA and we were looking at a variety of things. And one of the things that we discussed and then I wanted to explore was the um, fact that our science is under, um, doesn't have a lot of data on effects of punishment, largely due to a kind of political uh, situations that curtailed studying such things, which um, at the time, and I still think is um, a situation that puts us at a disadvantage if we want to have a comprehensive understanding of, of learning, um, especially there might be a world one day that society is built in a way that, that there are no or very minimal aversive situations and, and coercion's not really a big part of it. However, that's not the world we're in today. And I do feel we are disadvantaged if we we like to chest thump about we're here to save the world, yet we're we're not examining a large part of the world um, of of behavior. So because of that, I was interested in like, well, maybe we could, you know, as a burgeoning behavior science, maybe we can, you know, explore this. Um, and I also didn't think that a good idea would be to start just adding aversives to people's experience and then studying that other than, you know, maybe you could do some analogs. And I did look, um, there were a couple of situations where I flew to, um, you know, outside of the U S to colleagues that were exploring some of those things. Um, and so JRC was on my radar of that's a place that there are aversive, uh, contingencies, that are in place and controlled and might be a place that we could examine what happens there without adding to uh, that situation, right? So I reached out and my Ari and I flew out and did a visit and um, talked to, at that time was was Nathan Blankish there about, might we do some research? And our, our big interest, uh, my, my Ari and I were, what are like side effects of what happens when punishment contingencies are put in place versus, you know, reinforcement only that kind of a thing. 
And so we, we spent some time and kind of uh, dialoguing about what that research could look like. Um, at the same time, right after I'd visited, I went home, um, the Mother Jones article came out. So if anybody's familiar with JRC, I'm, I'm assuming they're familiar with that. And uh, evidently, the reporter was presenting their experience to the administrative team as being very supportive and talking about how much they were helping um, the folks there, and then wrote an article that was the opposite of that, which um, I think made them wonder if, you know, it was, am I going to do, it was Josh going to do the same thing, right? And so we were um, told that, that that was not going to be available. Uh, they were, I think at the same time, they were also engaging in a few legal battles. Um, I don't remember which. There have been a number of, of times where legislative uh, efforts have been attempted to uh, eliminate the option of, of the contingent skin shock. So all of that kind of culminated and, and basically that fell apart. And so I said, okay. And I moved on with my other things. I continued to present at, at conferences and push the narrative of we ignore half of the world of learning um, at our own peril as a science. And we need to continue to try and understand it one way or the other. And, and I, um, the, I, I don't like much the idea of a philosophy driving us to ignore such things rather than saying, you know, this is, this is what's, what is happening. And it's such a large part of our world. I mean, I, I have a burn from, uh, oh yeah, there, from my, uh, the oven in my kitchen that I was cleaning and I, I touched it and that makes me careful around that, that spot now. Um, and that happened to me, you know, two days ago. So I'm still experiencing aversives. You go on social media, you see a lot of people, um, being aversive towards thoughts I have. So those are things that, that do happen. And so I think, you know, my, my position is always, we should understand stuff rather than ignore it. Um, so that is what led there. I believe I was asked to join the board, um, when I was, when they were, um, they had attended a few of my talks and presentations, and I think came to the conclusion that I, I was authentic in what I was saying, and I wasn't a risk of getting in and, and pretending and then blowing things up. Um, I went out, visited, and uh, the reason I joined was I felt like I could, um, A, I wanted to understand it, and B, I do believe there are people that are getting a lot of help um, and, and enhancing their lives there. And so I thought I could add to that in terms of providing my understanding. Um, I had a pretty solid contemporary understanding of behavior analysis. What we could, you know, what could we bring from current uh, knowledge into practice there? And um and then I'm also a, a big believer in the right to effective treatment, which is one of the you know tenants that drives what happens at, at JRC. So all that kind of culminated, um, and I've been on on the board and serving there, you know, for I guess near a decade at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's kind of why it's a funny thing. I will I will say there have been folks that have said, you know, I'm doing it. I'm 
defending certain things for my own gain, um, which I, if I were advising a person in the field, especially a, a younger um, PhD academician, that would not be the route I would recommend. I don't, not much upside. There's a lot of, it's a very contentious situation, controversial. And, um, and we're painted, uh, like people say, oh, you like shocking people or you're pro shock. And, um, and I'm not, I don't, A, I don't, I've never uh, applied contingent skin shock to anybody. I've never written a program that included that. Um, you know, my, my level of involvement at GRC is um, on the board. I don't do uh, clinical decision-making on like a daily basis. We do provide consult and I have helped develop and conduct uh, analog functional analyses there of, of cases that were tricky. So, and I've done workshops teaching um, various aspects. Uh, I've brought some ACT uh, approaches in and said, hey, these are things you might consider, uh, but I'm by no means a, a clinician there. And so, um, you know, I don't, I would, I think language is important. And I think the idea that anybody at JRC is pro-shock or pro-CSS is mis is is as misguided as thinking somebody that's pro-choice is pro-abortion. I, I think that's a really good parallel of the and, and likewise, I don't think pro-life is a good descriptor. And I think, you know, anti-CSS probably is a decent descriptor there. Um, but I think those are things that are important is it's it's pro um, effective treatment, and uh, JRC has determined that they believe that CSS is is one uh, component of of a potentially effective treatment package, and so I think that's an important position to to be understood and make clear because I I have a lot of people is how can you how can you want like you know shocking people and I I don't think I don't know anybody that does. Um, so that's sort of how I got there and here. Um, generally we're pretty quiet about like engaging in, in, um, such topics has not led to much fruit in terms of, you know, I, I think I see a lot of people that are being activists without engaging in good faith discussion, not trying to understand, not trying to figure out what's okay. They've, they've a priori made some decision and now it's, they're pretending to ask in a way to just simply, you know, mm -hmm. lob bombs or lob grenades right. towards uh, the position they think is bad. And so I think, right. you know, the, this is the first time I've ever really engaged it in something like this. And partially it, it you know, it was our discussion of, um, I think as long as we've got good faith dialogue, then I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, yeah. there's nothing that, you know, it's funny. I've heard a lot of call for transparency. I've never seen a clinical or educational outfit as transparent as JRC. Uh, anybody can show up at the door and get a tour. Mm -hmm. If you were to come to my school, I have a private school in Orlando, you would be denied access to just walk around. Um, right, right. and so I think, I think even in, in that, like there's a demand for transparency. Well, I've seen quite a bit more transparency there than I have seen like, I don't know if you could go get a tour at, at the May or KKI or, or NEC. And if they denied you that, I would say, yeah, that's, that's the prerogative as a yeah. professional clinical organization. Yeah. You know, uh, Josh, that's helpful to get this like overview of your involvement 
and how you got involved. And I want to like, for our audience, I really do want to separate, like, I, I want to separate to, to the extent that it's appropriate. I want to separate Josh and, and Josh's role at, at JRC, because last time I talked to you, I got this, you know, you made a couple really important points. It was like, look, I, I, this is not what I like doing. It's not like I enjoy doing this. And so I do like, in the spirit of having good conversation, I just want you to know that like you want, you and I are on the same page there. Like I'm not assuming that you like see uh, a contingent shock. So just, just to make that abundantly clear, uh, I, I, I see the, you know, I see the human, the human side. Uh, I see, I see Josh as a human and I want to be respectful and have good dialogue with you. So, uh, but I have like hard questions. Like I still, that doesn't change the fact that I'm still very, concerned and I'm wrestling with a number of things. And I think you have uh, good insight, maybe insight that nobody else does, which is why we're talking. So can you please walk me through Josh to the extent that it's appropriate, to the extent that you can. One of the most significant questions that I have on a, on just a daily basis, as I've been wrestling through this myself and with our colleagues is like, what are the alternatives here? So, you know, we've talked about like, we, we need to be really mindful that we're not going to, we're not going to just make these take these positions. And, and I'm not saying that that's, I'm not saying this is me saying this, but I think that it, it seems the sentiment is like, we want to be mindful not to make a position saying we're, we're, we're just not going to do this without understanding the alternatives. Now I, 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 I probably would be in the, the position just in the spirit of transparency. Like I probably just say, yeah, we're just not going to do this. Let's just not do this anymore uh, because th- there must be alternatives and I think, I think Jonathan in one of the interviews says, I just have never met a behavior analyst who said, I'm just out of ideas, right? So, so I, you know, I, I can empathize with the, the, the rationale that we like, this saves lives. Like, I totally get that. And, and I want to understand how that's the case. But can you walk me through, like, from your perspective, like, what are the steps that are taken where the team internally just says like, we're just, we've tried everything. We really have tried all the things and we're not really sure what else to do. Like that would be, I think, a really helpful conversation to have just to give understanding from, from, from your perspective on like the things that are tried that we talked about systems on our last, on our last conver- uh, uh, phone call and that brief phone conversation we had. Uh, like what are the systems that are in place to protect the, the individuals that are there and, uh, and, and what, what are the things that are tried before, before the, you know, before JRC resorts to contingent shock? Like that would just be a helpful conversation to have if, if, yeah. you, if you can have it. Yeah, I'll, I'll share what I can. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm more than happy to say I, I can't, I can't share certain things. Um, I'd like to respond to that first. Like a behavior analyst has never said they have no ideas. I've seen discharge, failed discharges. So I would, I would push back pretty hard on, sure, you may not admit it, but you've discharged and um, without fixing the problem. And I know this because JRC got those referrals and from the facilities that I think we all hold as gold standard of severe behavior treatment facilities. So um, my first thing is I, it's a, it's a, fun statement of like sure and i mean we all have a bunch of ideas but i don't think it does a service to our field to suggest that there's never failure um 
Oh, and, sure. And, and, and that may not they may that may not have been his intention. Like I, I may yeah. even be remembering incorrectly, but I think I got the general sense that it's like our our job as behavior analysts is to really try all the things, right? I think maybe that's what he was right. trying to say without speaking for him, but I, I, I certainly can appreciate the the pushback. Like that's what we're that's what we're here to do, right? We're yeah. here to debate, have healthy debate. Debate's not a not an undesirable thing. That's what we need more of in our field. Transparent yeah. conversations like this where we can argue with one another and still be colleagues at the end of it, right? Yeah, and Jonathan and I, I mean, I, I consider him a, a dear friend, so I, hopefully he does the same with me. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think, so I, I my first thought is, and I've had treatment failure too, where I didn't know what to do. And I've, I mean, I a long time ago, I ran group homes, but my most recent has not been uh, residential things. And a lot of my failure got referred out to more intense and generally from that residential is one of those. If you fail at residential, then the question shows up. Um, the So uh, in terms of, I think one um, disinformation or misunderstanding that is pretty pervasive from my, what I'm reading and assuming is the meaning, is that uh, contingent skin shock is last resort at JRC. It is not, um, and, and I think I even heard Jonathan talking about like as a policy, there's not a policy that is learners are going to come in and get it. And the question is, how do we get there? It's the, it is a last resort option. And I believe on average, um, you're looking at at least a year of all sorts of other positive only approaches in JRC. So not a year prior to coming, but once they've been admitted, um, that have been attempted and when the level of intensity, severity, and frequency of dangerous behavior um, does not drop it, or, or at least downtrend. So there's two kind of things too. There's what's an acceptable level? Do we hit a threshold? And if we haven't hit it, we need to do something. Or it's downtrending. So now we just need to keep that going and it'll get to that level. And um, both of those are, are considered in, in the decisions. Um, but it's it's generally at least a year. The when the idea of a an aversive procedure is is brought up um, by the clinical team saying this is what we think may be in the best interest of this person now, it is the the person, if possible, is in, is engaged in that discussion. Their parents and or guardians are kind of the first step. It goes through. There's actually. Um, a peer review committee that, sorry, not peer review, that's probably the wrong, a review committee that's independent external that was originally part of a court monitoring program. When that court monitoring program was over, so JRC met all the criteria and they said, yeah, this is good. JRC decided, you know, let's keep that going. That's a good protection in place. That makes us feel good that we've got some external folks including two people are are put on that committee from the New York Department, I believe, of Education, which is one of the groups that is kind of coming, often saying we don't like this. And the Massachusetts, uh, one of their, I'm trying to remember which group now, disability group, they've got it. So it's their, that reviews. Then it goes to um, a, it has to be court approved Prior to the judge reviewing, there is a court-appointed independent um, 
advocate for the per, the learner that um, is also given um, the ability to hire their external experts to review that aren't tied to any of it and no cost so that there's no reason not to. Um, all of every all of those groups review the plans, review the data, review the context and the situation and determine, do we think that this is a legitimate need that's going to enhance their quality of life? And if all of those folks say yes, and the judge is reviewing all this, determines it, um, then that is what gets put into place. Um, I've probably forgotten. There are many layers of protection. I've probably forgotten several. I'm not looking at anything that walks through. But though, and, and that's the kind of thing when I came on, I was looking at what is there. Um, I mean, because I hear the rumors. I've heard the rumors. I've read the um, articles, the ju- news articles. Um, and one thing I always tell everybody, the purpose of news is not to inform you of facts, it's to sell newspapers. And it's really important to understand those contingencies. Now, they have to do it with some semblance of facts. They can't just make up things whole cloth unless they're tabloids. Um, so it's not that we should just dismiss everything, but I think it's important to understand the contingencies. And, and I look at that with anybody that's making any kind of statement. And one should look at that with me. What are the contingencies that Josh is operating on? Um, and what's Robbie operating? Like, these are all things that, um, you know, we can't assume anybody is, is going to just be fully factual by, you know, by default, we're humans. Um, I think I watched the interview earlier. It's really interesting. I think that happened prior to the ABI reply out. There are facts that are different between what was stated. And I don't think anybody's lying. I think everybody exactly as they are reported is how they remember it. And I think that's their perception. Um, and I think it's a really good little microcosm of like, these are really smart people that are really focused on objectivity, accuracy, all of that. And yet even in that, there's some, um, you know, disconnect. Interesting. And, yeah. and I know all the players. I've been on ABI exec council. I was there when there was a big resignation. So I, I believe that everybody has presented what they believe is true. And so... Um, you know, given all that, and that's not a, I mean, it's kind of emotionally charged, not nearly as emotionally charged as some of the newspaper things we see, the court cases that are out there, the FDA bans and, and overturns, all of those are super emotionally charged. And when you bring that in, I think it's, it's really easy for perception to shift from what we might consider reality. Um, and so I think it's important to understand the contingencies under which the players are operating in all of those engagements. Um, and so that, yeah, I don't remember what led me to that. I got a little rambling off topic. Uh, oh, so the protection. So when I came in, I like, you know, it was one of the questions I'd heard all these things. And, um, you know, I also was like under the impression because that's what people say is like that everybody at JRC got contingent skin shock, almost as if they walk in the door and, and this is your plan. Um, and so, you know, my first, when I got there, I was like, how does this work? And what are the, prote- and I, there are many layers of protection above what I've seen anywhere else. And, and I've worked at a lot of uh, state-run institutions, ICFMRs. I was at an ICFMR that was under lawsuit by the Department of Justice. So we had a tremendous amount of oversight. We had a court monitor. Um, and, and still all of that pales in comparison to the protections I've seen layered in. Um, and so I think, you know, that that to me is there. there is – this idea that there's just a rogue group, I, I think that that should be laid to rest. There's a lot of layers. 
the question is, you know, you can always, it really seems to get to me, the question is, is punishment as a contingency to reduce problem behavior an okay thing? If the answer to that is in some situations, then we have to start asking ourselves, which situations is there a topography that shouldn't be used, which seems to be kind of a, a thread here. Those are kind of, to me, we need to wrestle with that and figure out what our answers to that and then bring it to bear on this this organization or this situation. Um, yeah. and, and so yeah. you asked earlier, what were some alternatives? Um, I, and, and I mean, when you're talking about, and I've had, I've worked with, with pretty, I don't think I've worked with as severe as I've seen it at these, and I, I would call it like these New England places because it seems to be a hub of where severe behavior is treated. Um, yeah. And so, right, right. Uh, you know, if you look at where a lot of them are, Though the severity there is, I think, higher than most of what I've experienced, but I, I, a, I've, I've seen it, not necessarily treated it um, as a as a full time job. Um, generally, the options are when you've got an assaultive person that is is risking people's safety, you have to either physically stop them, you have to mechanically stop them, um, or you chemically stop them. Um, in, in the moment, at the very least. So you might have some magical treatment idea that's going to take some time. And that's that's a debatable thing of like, have all things been exhausted? Um, but prior to that, you've got to do something to make sure in that moment nobody is hurt. Um, and those three are the alternatives that I'm aware of. Um, and... I like the there was a the paper in 2020 not published in a clinical journal so it was not reviewed by people with clinical expertise per se um, which is an important it was it's a political journal or a, so those are things again considering who's looking at and, and the contingencies um, that talked about like these side effects are a bad thing and okay what are the side effects of chemicals physical restraint those are things that are I've not seen. Those well, well, uh, chemicals we have a, a some aspect, but the restraint thing, um, I haven't seen really good studies that have looked at what happens to a person that is physically restrained, uh, you know, four or five times a day. Um, when people talk about trauma, you know, one of the things I think about is if you look at topographically similar situations to traumatic histories which is more like it a two second uh painful stimulus on an arm or leg that with no person nearby or being grabbed and held by four or five people larger than you or if you're doing a chemical injection being held to the ground and pants pulled down in an injection those are all things that i think in my consideration i, I want us to look at all of that i want a world where none of that's needed i mean and stop. I can say that. I think everybody that I know would, would probably say that. I know um, Jonathan mentioned that's not behavior analysis, which is an interesting position. I I saw this morning, so I haven't had a lot of time to think of that. My first reaction to that was, okay, that happens at all those New England severe behavior centers. So I guess if you're going to like slice the treatment package of like, well, this part's behavior analysis and that part's something that's not us. 
like, okay, I guess we we could do the same then with CSS at that point if if that would help the field. Like, well, okay, that's not be analysis. It seems an odd that seems like an odd position for me um, to to take. It seems odd for me to hear a behavior analysis does not like restraint is not part of behavior analysis per se. When we do, we are some of the only people willing to work and we being behavior analysts, that's, I think part of why we've been successful as a field is we stepped in 30, 40 years ago and we worked with people. Nobody thought could learn. Nobody cared about, nobody wanted to help. They wanted to lock them up, throw away the key. That was standard care for much of our population 30, 40, 50 years ago. And behavior analysts were the people that said, wait a minute, we could do way better than this. Watch. And we did. And um, and I, that's why I think we're, we're funded now. We're, like all of that is because of some of the, the benefit early on. Um, but those are the people that do require restraints, uh, you know, PRN meds. I like to call them chemical restraints because I think that's the most functional term. Some people will avoid that and say, no, it's PRN med administration. Okay. Um, but it's chemically stopping them from moving around. It sedates them, sometimes knocks them out. Mm-hmm. Those are part and parcel to the population that some of us serve, the severe behavior population. And so I don't know that I would say, you know, I don't know that I'd list a, an, as an ABA technology a, a medicine administration or a physical restraint. So I agree with that. It's not a behavioral technology, but it's in a lot of behavior analytic programs. So um, yeah, if you don't use aversives, you've got to do, there's, there's going to, something has to fill that void of danger. Um, I also think if we don't bring behavior analysis, there's such a large proportion of, of these people that behavior analysts aren't even working with. They are still locked up, drugged up, restrained all day. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we've deinstitutionalized, those people are still out there. And I think that's the other aspect of, um, you know, yeah. KKI has 16 bets. That's one of the top ones. There's way more than that need. Well, Josh, in the interest of time, I know that you have to run at some point, oh, yes. but I wanted to close. I wanted to close with this. So um, I was uh, I was listening to an unrelated podcast that had nothing to do with behavior analysis, and I, and the podcast host said uh, they were they were doing investigations, internal investigations of a particular organization. And I, I thought that that really piqued my interest. I was like, oh, this is actually has a lot of uh, parallels to, uh, you know, the things I've been thinking through here in terms of systems and process. And, and the podcast host said, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant. And I think mm-hmm. what he was trying to say there was uh, he was really trying to bring attention to this idea that organizations really need to open themselves up to uh, to investigation, whether, you know, whether it's 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 allowing people from the outside uh, uh, in or whether just doing these internal investigations and really taking it upon themselves to answer these difficult questions. But, you know, you raised a number of, of, of tough questions. You did. Uh, let, let's be honest. And, and we can wrestle with those if we, if we had time. But, you know, you said, under what conditions are you going to use aversives? And so it, it would be like my recommendation as a colleague and as a behavior analyst uh, to, to really like, I think JRC should be on the forefront of answering these questions, right? So like you and I are talking about them, 
which is great. I'm glad we're doing it. But I would also call, I would, I would, I would call y'all to this standard, right? Uh, a high ethical standard of just answering these questions. And it seems like to an extent you've tried to answer these questions in the past and, uh, and maybe y'all are trying to answer these questions, but it just seems like such a critical thing that, uh, that you, you know, you take on, uh, and, and, in your role as a board member, like, I don't understand how the, the JRC board works, but, you know, I, I have a, I have a board position and I know that, you know, the, the organization answers to the board to an extent. And so I would just really encourage you, if anything, like I want to encourage you as a colleague and, uh, and, you know, I, I certainly appreciate having this dialogue, but those are, those are my kind of closing thoughts in response to what we just talked about. Um, and I do appreciate the transparency, I, you know, we, I certainly have a lot more questions, but, uh, you know, we, I think this was a good, a good initial, you know, initial conversation that we, that we could have. Yeah. I'll, let me kind of wrap on that a minute and then that'll be, I'm, I'm glad you brought attention sure. to the time. Cause I wasn't paying attention. I'm bad about that. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> some of that JRC has asked and it has been asked and answered. Um, and so I think the, so there's either if JRC is going to answer, then do we accept it? And that's, the answer to that has been no. A lot of people say we don't believe whatever. Um, so that's one. The biggest thing for me is um, we are a database and a peer-reviewed foundation, have a database peer-reviewed foundation for what we do. And as of right now, it is very difficult to, I mean, ABA's program board a priori decided to reject anything to do with this topography, um, which means we Sunshine has been precluded from that moment. We cannot, because JRC does present and is is available for interrogation in the audience, all of that in those those events. JRC has submitted um, papers that were desk rejected because they included punishment. And as a field, and I think as a field, we have to, I guess, decide, are we rejecting out of hand any of this kind of thing? And then that this kind has to be defined. What, What is that? But if we are not, we can't then on the other side say, well, that doesn't have enough evidence because the reason that it doesn't have enough evidence is not because people are not trying and not trying to say, let's look at this scientifically. Let's examine the data. It, it's being rejected, um, you know, philosophically. So I think there's a that's that's a, a friction point um, in our knowledge base of. I was asked, I remember I was asked to be a reviewer of a, on, a, on a journal for a, um, I don't know if it was a CSS, some sort of an aversive treatment package. And before I could answer like, okay, I'll do it or not, I was, I was looking through, uh, they were like, never mind, it's been rejected. We aren't going to look at this kind of thing. And I think from a science perspective, that's not good. Um, they're from an a morality perspective, that's a different kind of question is what is the, I guess, the line that we said, these are things we don't want to even know about. Um, and I have a hard time in that space because I feel like ignorance is never a good position to pursue of like, oh, we just don't want to know about this. And I heard that was a thing I heard too, is like, we don't want a platform you know, CSS, I get that. At the same time, we could platform it by saying, cool, you can have those discussions, but we also want to add on some critical analysis around it. So we're inviting people. To me, that seems like a much better approach from a scientific vantage of 
it's like what we're doing right here, frankly. It's it's we're not saying one's good, one's yeah. bad. We're saying let's talk about it. Um, so I think that yeah. I agree, sunshine. I I like that's a phrase I've used often. Best dis- disinfectant. I think JRC has taken that position in most cases. We we've we've had a lot of investigations. We have a lot of oversight layered on top that we are are more than happy to engage with, um, and. And we have to keep care. We have to be careful that we don't turn the thing into a spectacle. We have to be careful we don't violate professional requirements. So I've had people ask me they want to go and review a case, and and I was like, you know, that is um, you know unavailable professionally. You couldn't go into a hospital and ask for something. You know, we couldn't go into another clinic. So I think though there are some parameters that keep us from being just you know like come on in and look at everything. Um, I think right now they yeah. do, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with how open, um, and I am a hundred percent and I'm probably a pain in the, um, the butt to the rest of the board. I'm constantly saying, Oh, have we tried this? What are the, like, why are we th- doing this? And I've asked questions. My first question to Glenda, why not stop this? When I first brought up, those are uncomfortable questions. Um, and, and they are asked and, and answered. Like, th- that's a discussion. Nobody, I've never felt like things were being hidden or uh, my questions were being dodged or not answered. Um, which, again, audience would have to trust me because you weren't there when I heard them. But that's been my experience. Um, and, and I think going forward, I think JRC is um, more than happy to examine. One thing they're always excited about, if someone has a better treatment idea, um, like I said, nobody wants aversives if there are alternatives. That is um, a standard we all agree with. So that that is something um, when ideas are brought up, we generally are they looked at carefully and incorporated. There, there's a value add. So um, I hear that you know we do definitely have a higher responsibility to this sort of thing I'm looking at, um, and I think we are one. I think probably good thing this has been brought to a head of. Um, there will be decisions made, ABAI's task force, and that'll guide some things. So I'm I'm eager to see how all that plays out. I am hoping everybody will engage um, in good faith and in the interest of understanding rather than just litigating what they think is bad. Um, I think that nobody benefits from that. Right, um, yeah, this is my intent in doing these interviews was certainly good faith debate and uh just information gathering so i i think to i think you know mission accomplished i think we continue to gather good information and have good conversations that are hopefully productive and and fruitful uh again my my encouragement to jrc is to is to really like do the the hard work that's required um internally uh i would strongly encourage uh for y'all to really open up like what you do to to people who might be able to guide uh, new practices and procedures and systems to just ultimately protect the individuals that y'all are serving. And again, like there's, there's certainly the way that, the way that you talk, the way that you represent JRC just seems to be, you know, in the, to your point earlier about, uh, the facts being the facts and there being discrepancies between, uh, you know, in, in the situation where, you know, ABAI submitted this email recently and we had a conversation with Jonathan and Amy prior to that and those didn't really match up necessarily. 
I think the same goes for JRC. There's just like the, and people's perceptions are reality. And so it's their reality. And I think that there's the perception of JRC is not, not good based on my very quick, you know, very quick study of, of what's, what's happening and, and all that's there. So again, I just, as your colleague, I, I don't know what else to say. You know, it's, it's, yeah, no, I think there's a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's jump back into the conversation. You probably remember where we left off better than I do, but I want to make one quick comment and, and say that as we, as we get started here, I think the rate at which people are learning new information is, is quite rapid. I, uh, it would be, it would have been yes. interesting to graph these data because, uh, it just seems like day by day people are learning more and more. And so even this morning I'm getting messages and, and, uh, emails forwarded to me just regarding, uh, potential abuses and, and things of that nature. So it's just really interesting to be in this position where I think day by day, we're just learning so much, but uh, let's, let's pick up the conversation. I just wanted to kind of quickly set the stage and say, man, we're like learning so much day by day, which, which I'm sure, I'm sure you're learning the same information that I am. So. Yeah. Well, and I'm seeing, a, I mean, there's, there's a tremendous amount of misinformation out there too. That's just getting, you know, spread, unfortunately. Um, and I think that's really, uh, it's not abnormal. If you watch politics, you see the same game play out over and over. Um, I think one thing that's really important is this, our field is at a position that we have to have this decision of, you know, I guess what we would think could, what the, uh, the limits of acceptable treatment would be for humans. I mean, that's kind of, I think what's here. Um, there's. There's been, you know, I've watched a number of the videos now there's been, uh, that you guys have done, and there's been a lot of um, conversations of, you know, this, this just can't be, is, is a statement that I've heard several times that my, my challenge to that would be, okay, and there are humans involved, and those humans that nobody else has to wor- worry about, and that, that's the burden that the clinicians and the, the staff at JRC yeah. currently have, those humans have to have something. And so that becomes, you know, a discussion that needs to be had. I think that this is a very important discussion, a very important point in our field too, that should be, you know, informed and not just sensationalized and turned into a um, one of of rhetoric. And I think that's what, you know, I'll tell you right now, I'm embarrassed about how our field has, over the last three years, we have seemed to take a, a fairly frequent approach to lynch mob mentality of issues and then burn somebody, yeah, yeah. specific I- person to the ground versus saying, wait, what's at issue? How do we handle that problem? Um, and I mean, I'm getting, I've, I've had that thrown yeah. my way last two weeks. Right. Yeah. And can I say that? Look, like I, I, I can absolutely empathize with what you're saying. I, 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 I agree that if we're, if, you know, cause I, I'll be, I'll be one of the first ones to say like, man, this just, we have to figure out a way to do this differently. But on to that point, we have to then say, okay, but what are we going to do differently? What are the alternatives? How are we going to work through these challenging situations? So there is nothing in me that says, uh, just that that with without understanding where we're going, uh, that uh, 
that that says like, okay, just just just. I don't want to. What I'm trying to say is, I don't want to just say like prematurely, like okay, we're just not going to do this anymore. Even though that's that's you know personally, that's what I want to say. But I, I can empathize with what you're saying in like, well, what are we going to do because there's humans involved? And I, I my intent in creating this dialogue was to to keep the the standard very high in terms of like I want to make sure that we're having the utmost respect for everyone participating in the conversation. So uh, just know that that's my, my goal, my, my desire. And so uh, I appreciate, you know, you sharing very vulnerably with us, your, you know, your thoughts and perspectives on this, but uh, I do think it's, it's a super difficult conversation that we're having. And, and I don't think there's any real easy answers um, no. to the, to the situation. Not at all. And, and I think that's why I'm engaging historically, Honestly, I've not much engaged because po- folks have not been interested in actual dialogue and, and wanting to understand. They've been interested in scoring points. Um, and so I'm here because we chatted. I was like, okay, I think, A, I think it's going to be a conversation that happens regardless. If all perspectives aren't provided, then it's it's also an underinformed conversation. And I think right. As a scientist, that's the almost one of the worst things I can imagine <laughs> in terms yeah, of, of yeah. inadequate data around something. So, right, um, right. I think we're I think we're at a point. The field needs to discern, determine. I, I suppose um, are there things that topographically should be blocked, re- removed from um, you know the technology of behavior change or the technology of helping people and. That's one question. And then the other question is if not, or if whatever those things are, and there's going to be in the bell curve of acceptable treatments and all, who can do each of those aspects? And so in, in this specific case, you've got sort of two issues. Is contingent skin shock as, a, as an aversive punishment procedure something that the field believes uh, should be available to people or not? That's question one. And then question two, if question one is yes, under certain circumstances, question two needs to become which circumstances, who, and what procedures surround it. Like, and that, mm-hmm. to me, those are two different things and they're being conflated often. And so I think yeah. that's the first thing that the field has to grapple. I think the ABAI task force, they are grappling that former. I, I doubt they are going to opine on a specific organization per se, because that's generally not what a scientific report would do. Um, but that I think that's the first step. Um, the other yeah. thing I think that seems to be missing in these conversations is, again, what else happens when you, you know, remove a certain option or when you change it? And um, I'm hearing a lot right now about consent and assent. Um, which are, are really important things that our field is just now really starting to approach, not just in this, but in, in all aspects. Um, and f- funnily enough, ha- um, oddly enough, ironically enough, I don't know which of the qualifiers, but I used to, I've been doing a lot of that work in my clinic way early on. Um, just that was baked into how I was taught. It wasn't necessarily, I read some article or it was part of a protocol, but I've always been an advocate of teaching, um, you know, I've had early intervention learners too. So teaching youngsters, um, the big people aren't always right. You don't have to do what the big people say and you need to start thinking for yourself and, and using those skills to advocate your needs. So, um, 
I've had program directors tell me, you know, that kid is annoying and does these weird things and uh, we need to address, that needs to be in the program. And, you know, I pushed back and said, well, I spoke with him. He says he's fine with those things. And because uh, he, he was able, we could talk. So I could ask him, like, what are the things you want in live? And at one point he added, I wanted a girlfriend. That changed the dynamic at that point, because then I was able to say, okay, well, some of the stuff that we're seeing right now is generally pretty off-putting to others. So you've got to make a decision of if you want a girlfriend, there's a kind of two routes there. Find a girl that doesn't mind this stuff. Um, and, and some of the stuff was like not showering, not dressing very, uh, you know, it was kind of slovenly or didn't match or whatever. Um, so now you have to decide, do you want to go on the long journey of trying to find that one girl that likes these kinds of things? And that's a route. Or do you want to try to adjust certain things that have more mass appeal to girls? And, and you, you know, you pick that and I'm going to help you whichever direction, you know, you go. Yeah. In my head, I, I had the thought I would do, but that wasn't, you know, that was his. So I've been doing that for a while. Um, not and and I have not done um, in all of that. It wasn't like I've got data of like I collected this much assent or consent. So there's an issue still, even though I was doing it in practice, it had not risen up into a kind of formalized aspect of what should be clinical in terms of we are formally trained that you ought to have a graph that shows if it's working or not. We're, I think, starting to enter in an age where we're saying, and you ought to have a thing that demonstrates assent or consent. Um, and I'm excited to also, we're seeing, and you have to have, um, you need to start now reporting demographics that we've historically missed. Um, and so, you know, I think our field, I'm excited about that direction of our field. Uh, contrary to popular belief, I know I've got, <laughs> I have people that will always tell you're an evil person, you do these things. It's like, okay, I mean, you don't really know what I do, but I think as a field, these are really important directions to head. Um, yeah. Now, to take that and bring it to contingent skin shock or really any punishment procedure, um, the likelihood of getting assent in the moment of having a contingent positive punisher delivered is is pretty low because by definition, in an aversive is something that would evoke behavior that terminates it and like saying, I don't want this would would fall into that response class um so when you think about that and you say oh well we should be able to have anyone withdraw assent at any point and um in, in philosophically i think that's a i agree with that however there are things like dignity of risk um the ability to understand what the outcome of that withdrawal means that all has to be factored in as well and that's where it gets really tough uh, especially people that can't uh, articulate in abstractions. Um, so even people that can that have language ability to hold uh, certain levels of conversation may still not have the ability to understand, um, you know, long term consequences, which are are part of should be part of that decision making. Um, right. The other thing is there when I hear these pe peer people like kind of debate this, they do it in a vacuum. So the, if you've got, a, let's say you have a person that's um, assaultive to others and, and so is hurting other people, um, in a non-disabled setting, that person gets arrested and incarcerated and they have no choice in their treatment at that point. 
um, when they are in the disabled world, now society has said, well, they don't understand some of those consequences. So they kind of get rerouted into a different approach, um, either a psychiatric ward, maybe a residential facility, some sort of a treatment approach. Um, and often that is sort of instead of incarceration, you get treatment. They don't get to opt out of treatment and go wherever they want. If they opt out of treatment, they might then land, like then the option is, do you want the treatment or incarceration? And then nested in within the treatment, do you want A, B, or C? Those are all kind of ways that you can take consent and assent, you know, down that pathway. When the question becomes, after um, you've been unsuccessful with these approaches, and approaches that I'm aware of right now are either you can do um, the best ABA program that we can think of. Um, you can do, I've seen uh, ICFMRs, residential facilities. They tend to be warehousey in terms of uh, place them here and we manage their behavior by providing more staff who can physically stop things if it gets hairy. So that's you know physical restraint. Um, mechanical or isolation I've seen as, as an option of, well, as long as they never around anyone else, they can't hurt other people. And that's one of the options. Um, or the, the chemical restraint. And I've worked with a lot of people that have been so sedated, they're just kind of walking zombies. Um, so then when you start to say, okay, what, what do you want of these options? It, again, it can't be, okay, we start this, do you want it or not? It's all right, we start this. Do you want it or do you want to go back to A, C, D, E? Like it's always an, uh, it's a concurrent choice, not in its own vacuum. And so I think that texture has to be part of the discussion. And you have to understand um, when you're making those decisions, some of those have been tried and failed. So at that point, you know, you've got the A through E, B drops out because it wasn't successful. You, I, I guess you could say, do you want to go back to the thing that didn't work after you've tried all this stuff? Those are options, I suppose. But they always need to be contextualized like that. Um, and then if, if that's the, if we, if everybody agreed with that, that we do need to have an understanding and don't make decisions in a vacuum. Now we can start looking at sort of individual situations. And I mean, the first question I would say is, where is the best ABA? Like, where do we think that happens right now? And I think people have in mind several places. And those places have failed and have referred to JRC. Specifically, we have a discharge report of a, of a learner that did that, that said, we were unable to treat this dangerous behavior. It is likely they will need contingent aversives and then discharged out. And so I think that also has to be part of this is, when those people discharge out, where what's left? Where does that human go? And you're kind of back at that place. They go to a psych ward. Um, they go to maybe a, a, another residential facility. They go in, and what JRC has kind of been saying is they, you know, we are a zero rejection. So we will take anybody that needs it. And that has been sort of the, there is, that place that will never, you know, say, no, sorry, you're too, too much or every other place has done that in, in many cases. So I think yeah. that's like, that has to be part of the discussion of, I wish we could say 
there is, and you know, I, I will say this. Contingent skin shock is a symptom of a much broader problem in society that these people do not get the supports they need when they were younger. And so we are dealing with a, a person has been failed over and over and over by society and the systems in place. And they arrive with, you know, these, this situation because of that failure and, and punishment is not that, is not the solution to that problem by any means. We need to be saying, how did they get here in the first place that this was, they had such drastic needs and what should we be doing on the front end? So that that doesn't have to happen. And when we do that, this whole conversation goes away because it's not needed anymore. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are people that have been failed so much that we, we have to, we have an ideal world and we have today's world and we can't, I'm not, I can't in good conscience ignore those that are caught in today's world um, in pursuit of that ideal. Uh, and so I think that's to me, a big yeah. part of the discussion that I, I think is missing and, and um, make yeah. it's what makes it so hard. Yeah. I think we need to do both, right? We need to, you know, working your points backwards. I think we need to, yes, absolutely reassess. Like how can we be supporting these individuals before they get to this point? Now, yeah. I also, I also do believe as a behavior analyst that even if the system has failed them uh, once they get into uh, a program that, that's providing high quality treatment, behavior should change, right? So uh, I agree that failure early on is just making our jobs more difficult later on, you know, down the road. But I also have to believe that, you know, once good treatment is is at work, then the, the then those learners would, would be making progress. Now, I have a question. So if we're if we're back to this point of like, well, there's this really is last resort, there's nothing else we can do. What if today and by the way, I do think to an extent the field has spoken because you're like, hey, look, we're at a crossroads, right? Like we got to choose as a field what direction we want to go. I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, one, I'm one dude. I have one perspective and I'm learning a ton each and every day. And I'm grateful for that because of all the, the, the people who have continued to shape my thinking and, and, and really poured into this conversation. So I appreciate that. Even by the way, people that haven't been interviewed, like I'm still learning from our, our field. So I'm very grateful for, for that. So I could be wrong, but to an extent, it feels like we have, we have said like, no, we really want to go this new direction. Like this, just this, it, this, this is inhumane. Uh, it, it's not just, it's not just a matter of like uh, a procedure that we're using. It's like, it's an, it's inhumane. Right. And it's, it's, it's violating human rights. Right. So, and I, and I've seen this and I've, I've seen this just in all the information that I'm consuming at, again, a very rapid rate. And I also have a job, so it's like, yeah. I'm trying to keep up as best as I can, uh, with the conversation while also making sure that my team's supported. So if we do decide that this is just inhumane and, and we're not going to do it, uh, like what does, what does the, or what do the organizations right now that are using contingent shock, like what are they going to do tomorrow? So today we decide, nope, we're not doing it anymore. It's inhumane. It's we're done with it. What is the, what's the, what's the next alternative? Like what is the next thing that we're going to do that perhaps is, well, obviously it's more humane because we're, we're, we're still doing it. Right. So I think that's a question I have is like, well, what if this is just gone tomorrow and we're not using it anymore? So anybody that is familiar with philosophy, um, and hopefully that's many, but I think probably not as many, there is a choice. This is a real life train lever question. 
And this is the thing that I can tell you right now, this is what keeps uh, the, the staff at JRC up at night um, because it's a, and I've heard several people, well, this is not sustainable. It's hurting the field. That's a common good approach and, and philosophies can't be value. You can't val evaluate them on good or bad philosophies. They just are. But it's good to name them, I think, and say that's a common good approach. And what that means is that we are choosing the thousands, maybe millions of people that ABA can help over against the 50 people that are currently uh, benefiting from this treatment. And, and the question is, you're at the, the train's going to go kill this many people or this. And you have to pull the lever, which means you are choosing to kill that. What would you do? That is the, the reality that is confronting at least the staff at JRC. Everyone else in the field has uh, the luxury of being distanced enough that they don't have that decision really front and center for them. Um, and I, understandably, from that, if you don't have to think about that, it's a, it's, it's a pretty easy slam dunk PR statement. That's a bad thing, and pain is never good. That That... Makes sense. I, I get that. I understand why people have that. Can I note though? I am thinking about the 50. Yeah. Can I, can I just say, I am thinking yeah. about the 50, like mm -hmm. the 50 are not uh, absent. I'm not absent minded about the 50. I'm just trying to figure out what do we do about the 50 if this is just gone tomorrow? There, so there, we don't even have to speculate. This has been done. Um, not with 50, with one. There was a person back in the nineties that arrived at JRC um, he had uh, compulsive skin scratching and skin gouging so much that he had skin and bone infections and was wheelchair bound. Um, he came in and uh, the GD was part of his program, got that cleared up so his skin healed enough he could get skin grafts. He got out of his wheelchair. A, a uh, person that was um, a very strong uh, advocate for uh, positive only and anti-aversive talked his mom into saying he doesn't need that he's going to be really good all by himself it, like we can we can put him in an independent apartment he could have a really great life and talked to it and and she withdrew him and at, at, i think that was age 22 23 there's uh, i can find articles where the i think the new york times like kind of chronicled like this guy's on his own now and look at he's and they talked about how hard the staff the struggles of the staff because he would not you know go to work and they were complaining he's kind of grouch all this stuff this this is pain out there he died at 25 he died at 25 paralyzed from an infection of scratching and he and it was a painful death that is not a speculative thing that is a thing that happened it's a documented event that when that was removed he died if that had not been removed, he was living, walking, and healing. So I think those are that's the reality of if we are not very careful about how we go about this, that can be a very unintended effect, and it is a tragic one. Yeah. Now, you ask, what would happen to those 50? I'll tell you right now. I know. JRC will serve them. JRC will have to revert back to the physical management, mechanical restraints, and, and they will you know, be there and be served as best as JRC can. Um, the question becomes, and, and I've heard several people like, is Kinshock an okay thing if it's saving someone's life? 
and and I think that's not quite the right question. I think it, a better question is, is skin shock okay if it enhances somebody's quality of life? Mm -hmm. And saving a life is, is part of an enhanced life quality because you don't have it, you can't have a better one. But I think that saying, you know, being alive or not is the only, it's a dichotomous. I think there, the other question, there's a, I mean, you can look at newsletters that talk about, there is somebody that was um, nine years of uh, a better life quality than prior to JRC, but not as good as, as folks thought she should have. And she was in a sterilized room because any objects were risky for her. She was constantly hurting staff and herself constantly in physical and mechanical restraint and couldn't go out and do anything in the community because she was it was such a risk and when contingent skin shock was applied uh into in the program she had over the first three months i believe a total of 10 applications so 20 seconds in the in fact the whole year but the first it was in the first three months and then not again for the next nine months a year in which she was restraint free. She moved out of that sterilized room and into a home which she was able to decorate how she wanted. She had home visits. She could go to dances, parties. Um, she was out in the community. And so for that person, this is a real person, if, if that's removed, there is a very high probability her new life is going to be back like it was. And she is going to have all of those things gradually removed as they become dangerous and, and, and her world narrows down again. And yeah. that is what, you know, I think that needs to be part of the discussion of yeah. what, what do we do? She will remain alive. She's going to make sure that, that that's the case, but I would say her quality of life, in my opinion, will have been greatly reduced yeah. at that point. Can I, can I make a quick, can I make a quick yeah. comment? Um, so uh, my, you know, my sons are, my sons are getting older. Uh, I have a uh, almost 15 year old and a, and a, a 13 and a half year old. And so one of the things that we've been talking about in our house is, uh, is fallacies, common fallacies. And, and mm -hmm. it struck me recently how we were, uh, we were talking about, I think it's like a hasty generalization or sweeping generalization. And by the way, I would make the same point uh, to, to anyone else, but it's like, when you take when you take a, a you know situation of one and you apply it to a whole you know to a whole situation, then that's mm -hmm. obviously it's a, it's a it's a common fallacy. So yep. I I wonder if like yes I and I and I man these are these are humans right like we 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 these are the people that were entrusted to serve and we want to do that exceedingly well. So I'm not so do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Like these are real humans that we want to support. And I'm not minimizing that by any means. But I wonder if like even stories aside, like if we're just being hyper objective of like, okay, but like we, we get that these are case studies that we can learn from and we should learn from them. But like these aside, you know, what are like, what are we going to do? Uh, the other thing that comes to mind, I mentioned this in Tom's interview. I don't know if you had a chance to watch yeah. that one. You have the benefit of like, you, you know, yeah, no one else had that. you yes, have yes. the benefit of that. No one else had that. Um, and, and this conversation, we had no idea what direction this, this would take. We just literally, you, you know, we were texting this morning and we decided to have uh, part two. But the other thing I mentioned in Tom's interview is that um, I learned this from from uh, Indra Nui, uh, who was the former CEO of PepsiCo, and she, she they were talking about a sustainability project, and they invited you know basically the critics into their tent. She's like, I want my biggest critics in my tent to to inform what we do going forward, and I've gotten to see that story play out a little bit more as I continue to read her book. But I just wonder, like, if let's say that they were, let's say that 
the 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 most prominent critics of contingent shock were in those conversations also like i feel like that's a direction that jrc just needs to move somehow it's like man i really love for y'all to have just more people involved in some of these treatment decisions because i think like you know there's just no denying that like the 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 message that's out the message that that's out there, whether it's misinformation or not, is like, it's just not good, right? Like, you know that, you've seen it all, you've seen more of it than I have, I'm just trying to keep up. So I just wonder like, what like what would others who are just totally like not involved in the situation right now, who are able to come in with like, you know, uh, 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 maybe a fresh perspective, like what would other experts say about these situations, right? Like, is there a more humane way to treat the individuals that are engaging in these severe challenging behaviors. Look, I know that like, these are, these are life threatening situations. I'm not, I'm not going to minimize that. So that's where I just still am wrestling with this, Josh. Like, I just do not know what we, I I just, I'm I'm trying to figure it out. Like, what's the, what are we going to do differently? So you, you just said, what if more people were involved in the decision-making? My first question is how many people are involved in the decision-making? I have no idea. That's what I'm trying yeah. to learn. So, That's so what I, I asked you. Wonder, like, when people yeah. ask that question, I was like, where are you coming from? Do you know how many? So I can, I yeah. can illuminate that. We, it's a pretty, it's the most rigorous process I've ever seen. Um, and in terms of like, you heard Tom Zabo when he talked about the skin shock, he applied to the gentleman. It was only an internal, like him and, and a human rights committee that was constituted. Um, with JRC, the process is first off, it's not, available out the gate when they show up that is not on the table it they have to first trial a non-aversive program um, and it has to be demonstrated that there is progress is not sufficient Uh, so that's step one is it it isn't even available until there's been demonstration database demonstration that that the the program is not working Um, so that's that's the first one and that's not a big bar like that's not something i would say there's a lot of protection there that could be by virtue of a lot of things. The next step is the consumer and guardian slash family is, is um, an in-person meetings requested and then said, hey, here's what we are seeing. Here's an option that we want to now look at. And that is decided there. Um, some folks can provide like vocal verbal input into that and some folks cannot and they are substituted judgment by their parents or family members. Um, after that, so that's, let's say, and that could be a no. Okay. Then it's done. That could be a yes. Then it goes to, um, the court system and the court system does a, has a court appointed attorney. It's got, that is not affiliated with JRC and is not affiliated with the family. So this is a person whose only job is to advocate for the individual, regardless of everyone else's thoughts or, or concerns on that. That person is then that that attorney hires their own independent, non not tied to JRC psychologist and whatever other expert they want, funded by the state. It's so it's free for them to do that. That person reviews the entire case and decides whether they think yes or no. Um, then it goes to the judge. So then they give their input. That all goes to the judge. The judge has to decide: can the person is the person competent to make their own decision? If that's a yes, then they ask, and then yes or no. If not, then the judge now has to make the substituted decision of, if I were that person, given all these facts, would I uh, consent and assent to this treatment? Um, if that gets approved, 
Then it goes to, um, there's a, a internal human rights, internal peer review group at JRC. There's also, because we've, the, the, the other aspect of JRC, I think it's one of the most scrutinized places in the world that's been through numerous, very detailed legal, you know, suits, litigation, all this. They, at one point we were, there was a court monitor. So they created an external committee that two of the, uh, I believe, believe plaintiff groups, so the, the Massachusetts DD group and then the New York Ed, they placed their own people on that committee. So you're talking about already layers and layers that have people outside of JRC providing that input. Now, the other interesting thing is there's, there's an assumption in your initial question that is, for instance, that I showed up to the board as a contingent uh, skin shop proponent. Um, and as a matter of fact, when I was invited, I don't remember what I told them. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I know that. I know that. Yeah. So I showed up and I am, I'm, I, uh, I did the week long deep dive, took my grad students and decided, am I, is this a place that I think is helping people? Once I just, and I think, yes, I think from bottom to top, I've never seen people that care as much. Um, but when I joined, I am probably the most irritating board member um, on there because I do demand like, wait a minute, have we thought about this? Um, are y'all aware of this new technology that has been published? Um, is there a way we can do things differently? And I have watched over the last decade, move after move in more progressive directions. I've been, you know, an, an agitator from within. And then part of that is that is how I approach anything I think needs change. I think critique from without has some place, but generally, there's two things. Either this is a bad outfit and we should get rid of it, or it's a good outfit and we should. And then that point, that's the someone I decided I want to go in and I want to make change from within. I want to help grow them in a direction that I think um, you know those the, those clients deserve. And and that's that's what I've done. Now, if we were to say, um, could we bring on an external anti JRC person? I think the first the problem with that, the, and, and I like the idea, I would love the idea to say, Hey, we brought someone and now we've, cause it gives some like face, va face validity of like, okay, someone else is looking and they think it's okay. The problem is I've not seen people that are philosophically opposed being willing to, to have an open consideration. And the question, and again, the question becomes, does that person's values override this human's rights to effective treatment? And, and that's the, the yeah. balance that's got to be struck. Um, and, and, you know, so those are, those are those situations. Yeah, no, I, uh, I certainly understand that. And, and I'll say like, you know, in hearing you tell me this story, by the way, and that's helpful to know, like, what are the steps that, that we're going through before this, <laughs> this procedure is used? But it's almost like, man, what came to mind, I'm just being honest with you. The thought that came to mind was like, man, yeah. but it's that same system that's failed them to uh, up through this point anyways. It's like, okay, let me go, you know, court appointed this. And it's like, again, it's like, I felt like, and I could be totally wrong, but it felt like, yeah, this is the same system that's failed them their entire lives. And, and it, now it's the same system that's saying, yeah, go ahead and, and use this procedure. And that could be totally miss. I could be off base there, but like, that's kind of what it felt like when you were walking me through it. And again, I just, I, I do feel to your last point, like inviting the critics into the tent. 
I think is, is, is helpful. Like we, you know, in this project, I'll be uh, like, this project was totally like impromptu. I just thought like, let's, let's, let's try to, let's try to share information. But this was, I would say this is a small part of like a larger project that we'd been working on to address concerns in in the field. And so we're like, okay, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do these interviews. Um, But this, this, these weren't, you know, in in a lot of ways, like the concerns that our field is facing, it's not new to me. Um, but I, I just feel like in part, one of my strategies was like, I do want to hear, like, I want to hear from people who oppose ABA. I want to like understand where this ABA misinformation is coming from. I want to, I want to understand where the anti-ABA rhetoric is, 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 you know, where, where that's starting. And so I just feel like from, from my perspective, that could be something that helps, uh, you as a board member to help the organization that you're, you know, you're supporting. Well, and, and- I, uh, I agree. And like, and I think, I believe JRC has really demonstrated we are I'm not aggressive with people. And I mean, the people that show up on some of my stuff are extremely unprofessional. They're, they're attacking a person rather than any idea. I, I might name it. I might say you're trolling right now and I'm not engaging, but I'm not aggressive back. And I don't think you see that with any of the, the board, the board members and staff, we are open and we are hearing and listening. Um, and we we're also playing with moving goalposts. We so you said earlier, like this fallacy of generalized. So it's kind. Of, I'm assuming what you meant is that my my the story of the death should not be generalized to the fifty. And so okay. So then, if we want to be just objective, then we need to look at facts. We're talking about a 99 percent reduction of all the dangerous behavior almost immediately across 183 cases. It's been published in peer-reviewed journals. We're talking about the top place in the country that everybody says is the best. Their success criteria is an 80% reduction of these dangerous behaviors. So you're talking about folks with 3,000 per month of a response. 80% reduction means that there's still whatever a fifth of 600 of those happening a month. If they're dangerous, that could be death. And then another fact on top of that, 60% of their cases are successful. 40% of those people failed at that, the, the very best premier thing that we have available as a science. What do those 40% get? That, that has to, if, if we're going to be objective and look at facts and data, that has to be the thing. If we want to go subjective and we're going to talk about like testimony and all that, there are testimonies out there about how bad it is. And there are testimonies out there about how it saved their lives and they're living a good life because of it. Yeah. And is it a matter of, do we stack those up and count how many of each? There's so many things in terms of the subjective side that is hard to, you've got to be really careful. There's a lot of contingency. There, there's a lot to be gained by maligning such things. Um, th- there are a lot of people that want to, that are, are I've, I've had people that are reaching out to everywhere I, I'm affiliated or worked with and trying to pressure them to fire me to whatever. There's a lot to be gained to say, like, I was the one that took down that thing. And so we have to understand that human behavior of how that plays into this. It adds to the believability of what statements are. Same with me. Like what I say, I'm, I'm assuming someone's contextualizing that with, well, he's on the board. So you got to decide and, and you have to decide, like, am I lying? Am I, am I straight out lying about things? And I mean, if, if you think that's the answer, I don't know that there's much to discuss at that point. But if you think if, if the answer is like, no, you're not going to lie. 
all of this has to be factored into the believability. And it really all boils down to those, you know, the 50 folks. Those are humans whose lives are about, you know, th that they get impacted. Um, and, and like I said, JR, the other thing is that's been talked about is look how much money they're making for shocking people. If JRC wanted to make money, we would stop CSS because we have to spend so much that, that legal process that I described is really expensive. Um, and the legal defense against like, that's very expensive. It was, if it was really about money. We can serve the same population without it. We can't serve them in a way that we think gives them the best quality of life. That's the difference financially, you aren't paid for quality of life. That's unfortunate in our society too. Um, and so I, I, again, to me, this is a, a very nuanced conversation that has to be like very critically examined and can't, it's got to be insulated against the sensationalized um, influence or we're making a political decision. And then and, and I think that's the other thing is, are we are we going to pretend that it's a scientific, or do we want, are we willing to say it's political? And then those are are yeah. different. Um, and I don't. I mean, I in that case, I would just say, okay, I want to know which one we're which game are we playing here, so I can understand if it's political, the data doesn't matter. If it's scientific, then the data matters. If it's political, then the the question starts to become. Does the majority override the benefit to the small subsection? Mm -hmm. And and I mean, those, those are the discussions. Um, it's funny too. I don't like one of the accusations was, um, you know, I'm on the board to maintain um, my, my white power. Um, I would say if you want any kind of benefit in our field, don't join the board of chairs. It's not, a, it's not a good, there's no benefit to me. Um, I volunteer time. I get attacked. I have to, and, and I have to, I mean, it weighs on me constantly. Like what if someone does something? I mean, and I'll say there has been abuse at JRC that JRC has discovered with the cameras reported and charged. And I, I will also say abuse happens at every residential facility in this country. I would, I, I would wager that that is a statement that is a hundred percent accurate. I can't prove it, but I've been in many residential facilities and with humans that are getting, you know, attacked and hurt. That is a unfortunate uh, reality right now. JRC doesn't hide from it. We find it and we, we record it and we, we get, we try to get rid of it as fast as we, we try to put systems to minimize. So I think, you know, in my head, that's also weighing on me. What if a bad actor does something really bad? That blowback will show up. Um, and when I had to make that decision, I looked at, when I looked at that organization, I said, the net good here outweighs the risk to me. And I, my sense of justice is, I think it needs to be handled in, um, in the proper way. And I think I have something to bring to make it even better for all the people there. And that's over the last, I guess, decade now, that's what yeah. I've been agitating to do from within. And, um, and I can see, I can point to things that I'm like, yeah, this is movement. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. Josh. Uh... And so, I mean, that's the, I think one thing that's really interesting, Tom brought up euthanasia. Um, and that's been a, a big um, 
point in the medical world is that okay or not now he put a little bit of an absurd twist of like scratching his nipple but like people that are terminally ill is it a right to be able to in end their life um you know in that way yeah. my father committed suicide all by himself because it was not a, that was not an allowable thing and i think about i wish i could have been there with him um, and, and surrounded him, uh, by love or, or with love at the end of his, his life. But he had determined that his life, the pain of all that was, was not worth it and was too much. And, and he wanted that control, which gets at sort of the, a dignity thing yet modern medicine in the U S not other countries, but in the U S has decided that that's not something that's ethical. So those are, I mean, this is a nice parallel of like, it's, it's, there's a lot of similarities in, in that discussion. So you can look at, look to that literature and see at least some of the, I think that level of depth of the discussions there should be brought to bear here. Um, or we need to say, you know what, it's more expeditious to make this PR move. That's gonna, you know, help. I honestly don't think it's going to stop the anti-ABA. It'll be pivoted to something else, but it, it's an easy target for sure. So maybe that's the move. And that's the question, like Amy Odom talked about, well, we just can't afford this as a field. Uh, Zabo says it can't, it's not sustainable. Um, and then the counter is, well, what about these humans? What what do we do with those? And that's where I think the, the folks at JRC are at a really big dis even if let's say today everybody at JRC said yeah we don't think this is a great thing and we want to stop it are we willing to pull that lever for those 50 and return them back to you know potential death on some cases but also just lower quality of life do we let those stay until that fades out you know those are all the questions that yeah. have to be discussed and I and I think that that's that's exactly right uh, I think that there's a lot more discussion that needs to that needs to occur I think that there's a lot more there's just a lot of work to do. I think that we've, we've got to do the hard work that's ahead and, um, and look like, I, I hope that you, I hope that you can appreciate like the, the tension that like we're, that we're kind of, that we're working through right now. Right. Like, I think, I think that these conversations have been helpful. Um, I'm trying to, you know, create an environment in which like people can just openly share and vulnerably share what they think. And, 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 and w- without the expectation that like, look, it's not my job to tell you how to think Josh, just like right. it's not your job to tell me how to think. Uh, but, but, but by allowing others into the conversation, I think it's just, again, I, th- I think it can only do, I think it can only do good. So, uh, I, I, now I have to run this time, but, um, <laughs> Yeah. Is there is there anything else that you want to chat about before we before we uh, end the conversation here? No, I think I guess my my hope and I and the reason I've joined this and I don't talk about this with a lot of folks um, is that we do approach it with the gravity that it deserves and we approach it with um, I I think it's real I think it's really important that we we attend to our emotional responses and and that drives behavior it drives our passion and we, it, we chase that down but we do not show up in uh in an attack mode um i i can guarantee you everybody at jrc got into the business of helping people i'm in the business of helping people the people that are yelling at me and calling me evil are in the business of helping people and and we have a lot more in common than than not in that case 
And we need, I think keeping that in mind will make productive dialogues versus, mm-hmm. um, you know, if it starts to just be attack and defense, everybody digs in and nothing gets done. And so I think I'm hoping as a field, we can kind of get out of this habit of, of this attack mode, lynch mob kind of approach and, and, and give it the attention and diligence and good thinking that, you yeah. know, it and the people that we serve deserve. I, I, I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, one of my, like one of the lessons I learned very early on in my entrepreneurial journey was that because I tended to be very emotional as a young leader, you know, I worked in, I worked in public schools and then I, and then I went into entrepreneurship and that was so hard that like, it really tested me, which you, which you know. And so I I learned very early on that I needed to focus on the problems, not the people, because there was, there was early on, I was focused on the people and not the problems. And so um, I can certainly appreciate that. I want to support that. You know, one of like my values, and it's actually one of our organizational values at Maraca. It's like we're going to be unshakably optimistic, and so I, I really want to bring that to the conversation. And I do want to. I want to assume the best. I want to default to trust where yeah. it's appropriate. Um, I've had somebody tell me uh, I, I I had to do a, uh, an assessment uh, an assessment for a particular uh, you know situation I was involved in and. Um, I got to meet with an IO psychologist and it was a really helpful kind of like leadership assessment, executive assessment. And she said to me, you know, Rob, you have this habit of assuming the best in people and people want to prove you right. But just be mindful that sometimes, you know, people take advantage of you. And it was like, okay, that's helpful for me to know, like, you know, assume the best yet also be aware that, uh, you know, sometimes people haven't earned that trust. But I, I just hope that you can sense that, like, I really do want this conversation to be fruitful and productive. And I want to have the hard conversations. I want to live in that healthy tension. And I want to, you know, as a, as a field kind of move better, uh, move in a better direction, whatever that means, which obviously none of us have the answers at this point. So, yeah, no, the fact that I'm here should tell you that I believe that because I, yeah. I, I wouldn't engage in. And I, I've had similar, Josh, you're being taken advantage of. And I'm like, I, I prefer to be in a place where I feel good about what I did. And if they, I've had, I've had people steal from, like, they need it more than me at that point. And that's okay. I'm, it, that has served me well. So I would, I would urge you to keep that optimism and, and don't, right. don't, don't get too cynical, which is yeah. hard in today's world. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. it's yeah. yeah. like, while we're talking about this, we have another school. Like I, it's like compounding societal trauma that just is I know. hard to, hard to carry forward, but, um, I know. Um, focus on the good and we can keep pushing that way. And, and I, I do appreciate the open discussion and I'm hoping like Tom, I, I don't know summer. I really enjoyed, you know, her discussion, all of those people I view as, as this, they're on the team of wanting to help people and, we need to we need to figure out how to do that best as a as a whole, and I think the discussion lets us, you know, move towards that. And there are going to be disagreements for sure, even on other stuff. And so I think it's good to model. I'm hoping we do get kind of a group where we can model. This yeah. is how to healthily disagree. Yeah. I've pushed back on a few of your thoughts, and I hope it didn't feel too aggressive. But and ditto with you've said, you know. That to me is how we need to move forward. So yeah. I applaud what you're doing here, and I appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. Some of my um, some of my partners over over the time uh, over time have taught me like, hey, debate's really good, and so let's have healthy debate. Let's let's have good conversation. So 